This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. The Innocents Abroad by Mark Twain. Chapter 47. Jack's Adventure. Joseph's Pit. The Story of Joseph. Joseph's Magnanimity and Esau's. The Sacred Lake of Genesaret. Enthusiasm of the Pilgrims. Why we did not sail on Galilee. About Capernaum. Concerning the Saviour's brothers and sisters. Journeying through Magdala. We traverse some miles of desolate country whose soil is rich enough, but is given over wholly to weeds, a silent, mournful expanse, wherein we saw only three persons, Arabs, with nothing on but a long, coarse shirt like the tow-linen shirts which used to form the only summer garment of little negro boys on southern plantations. Shepherds they were, and they charmed their flocks with the traditional shepherd's pipe a reed instrument that made music as exquisitely infernal as these same Arabs create when they sing. In their pipes lingered no echo of the wonderful music the shepherd forefathers heard in the plains of Bethlehem, what time the angels sang, Peace on earth, good will to men. Part of the ground we came over was not ground at all, but rocks, cream-colored rocks, worn smooth as if by water with seldom an edge or a corner on them, but scooped out, honeycombed, bored out with eye-holes, and thus wrought into all manner of quaint shapes, among which the uncouth imitation of skulls was frequent. Over this part of the route were occasional remains of an old Roman road like the Appian Way, whose paving-stones still clung to their places with Roman tenacity. Grey lizards, those heirs of ruin, of sepulchres and desolation, glided in and out among the rocks, or lay still and sunned themselves. Where prosperity has reigned and fallen, where glory has flamed and gone out, where beauty has dwelt and passed away, where gladness was and sorrow is, where the pomp of life has been, and silence and death brood in its high places, there this reptile makes his home, and mocks at human vanity. His coat is the color of ashes and ashes are the symbol of hopes that have perished, of aspirations that came to naught, of loves that are buried. If he could speak, he would say, Build temples, I will lord it in their ruins, build palaces, I will inhabit them, erect empires, I will inherit them, bury your beautiful, I will watch the worms at their work, and you who stand here and moralize over me, I will crawl over your corpse at the last. A few ants were in this desert place, but merely to spend the summer. They brought their provisions from Ain Melaha, eleven miles. Jack is not very well to-day. It is easy to see, but boy as he is, he is too much of a man to speak of it. He exposed himself to the sun too much yesterday, but since it came of his earnest desire to learn, and to make this journey as useful as the opportunities will allow, no one seeks to discourage him by fault-finding. We missed him an hour from the camp, and then found him some distance away by the edge of a brook, and with no umbrella to protect him from the fierce sun. If he had been used to going without his umbrella it would have been well enough, of course, but he was not. He was just in the act of throwing a clod at a mud-turtle which was sunning itself on a small log in the brook. We said, "'Don't do that, Jack. What do you want to harm him for? What has he done?' 
Well, then, I won't kill him, but I ought to, because he is a fraud. We asked him why, but he said it was no matter. We asked him why once or twice, as we walked back to the camp, but he still said it was no matter. But late at night, when he was sitting in a thoughtful mood on the bed, we asked him again, and he said, Well, it don't matter. I don't mind it now, but I did not like it today, you know, because I don't tell anything that isn't so, and I don't think the Colonel ought to either. But he did. He told us at prayer in the pilgrim's tent last night, and he seemed as if he was reading it out of the Bible, too, about this country flowing with milk and honey, and about the voice of the turtle being heard in the land. I thought that was drawing it a little strong, about the turtles, anyhow. But I asked Mr. Church if it was so, and he said it was, and what Mr. Church tells me I believe. But I sat there and watched that turtle nearly an hour to-day, and I almost burned up in the sun, but I never heard him sing. I believe I sweated a double handful of sweat. I know I did, because it got in my eyes, and it was running down over my nose all the time, and you know my pants are tighter than anybody else's. Paris foolishness! and the buckskin seat of them got wet with sweat, and then got dry again, and began to draw up and pinch and tear loose. It was awful, but I never heard him sing. Finally I said, This is a fraud. That is what it is. It is a fraud. And if I had had any sense I might have known a cursed mud-turtle couldn't sing. And then I said, I don't wish to be hard on this fellow, and I will just give him ten minutes to commence. Ten minutes. And then if he don't, down goes his building but he didn't commence, you know. I had stayed there all that time, thinking maybe he might, pretty soon, because he kept on raising his head up, and letting it down, and drawing the skin over his eyes for a minute, and then opening them out again, as if he was trying to study up something to sing. But just as the ten minutes were up, and I was all beat out and blistered, he laid his blamed head down on a knot and went fast asleep. It was a little hard, after you had waited so long. I should think so. I said, well, if you won't sing, you shan't sleep, anyway. And if you fellows had let me alone, I would have made him shin out of Galilee quicker than any turtle ever did yet. But it isn't any matter now. Let it go. The skin is all off the back of my neck. About ten in the morning we halted at Joseph's pit. This is a ruined khan of the Middle Ages, in one of whose side courts is a great walled and arched pit with water in it. And this pit, one tradition says, is the one Joseph's brethren cast him into. A more authentic tradition, aided by the geography of the country, places the pit in Dothan, some two days' journey from here. However, since there are many who believe in this present pit as the true one, it has its interest. It is hard to make a choice of the most beautiful passage in a book which is so gemmed with beautiful passages as the Bible, but it is certain that not many things within its lid may take rank above the exquisite story of Joseph. Who taught those ancient writers their simplicity of language, their felicity of expression, their pathos, and, above all, their faculty of sinking themselves entirely out of sight of the reader, and making the narrative stand out alone and seem to tell itself? Shakespeare is always present when one reads his book. Macaulay is present when we follow the march of his stately sentences. But the Old Testament writers are hidden from view. If the pit I have been speaking of is the right one, a scene transpired there long ages ago, which is familiar to us all in pictures. The sons of Jacob had been pasturing their flocks near there. Their father grew uneasy at their long absence, and sent Joseph, his favorite, to see if anything had gone wrong with them. 
He travelled six or seven days' journey. He was only seventeen years old, and, boy-like, he toiled through that long stretch of the vilest, rockiest, dustiest country in Asia, arrayed in the pride of his heart, his beautiful claw-hammer coat of many colours. Joseph was the favourite, and that was one crime in the eyes of his brethren. He had dreamed dreams, and interpreted them to foreshadow his elevation far above all his family in the far future, and that was another. He was dressed well, and had doubtless displayed the harmless vanity of youth in keeping the fact prominently before his brothers. These were crimes his elders fretted over among themselves, and proposed to punish when the opportunity should offer. When they saw him coming up from the Sea of Galilee, they recognized him and were glad. They said, Lo, here is this dreamer, let us kill him. But Reuben pleaded for his life, and they spared it. But they seized the boy, and stripped the hated coat from his back, and pushed him into the pit. They intended to let him die there, but Reuben intended to liberate him secretly. However, while Reuben was away for a little while, the brethren sold Joseph to some Ishmaelitish merchants who were journeying towards Egypt. Such is the history of the pit. And the selfsame pit is there in that place, even to this day and there it will remain until the next detachment of image-breakers and tomb-desecrators arrives from the Quaker City excursion, and they will infallibly dig it up and carry it away with them. For behold, in them is no reverence for the solemn monuments of the past, and whithersoever they go, they destroy and spare not. Joseph became rich, distinguished, powerful, as the Bible expresses it, lord over all the land of Egypt. Joseph was the real king, the strength, the brain of the monarchy, though Pharaoh held the title. Joseph is one of the truly great men of the Old Testament, and he was the noblest and the manliest, save Esau. Why shall we not say a good word for the princely Bedouin? The only crime that can be brought against him is that he was unfortunate. Why must everybody praise Joseph's great-hearted generosity to his cruel brethren, without stint of fervent language, and fling only a reluctant bone of praise to Esau, for his still sublimer generosity to the brother who had wronged him? Jacob took advantage of Esau's consuming hunger to rob him of his birthright, and the great honour and consideration that belonged to the position. By treachery and falsehood he robbed him of his father's blessing, he made of him a stranger in his home, and a wanderer. Yet, after twenty years had passed away, and Jacob met Esau, and fell at his feet quaking with fear, and begging piteously to be spared the punishment he knew he deserved, what did that magnificent savage do? He fell upon his neck and embraced him. When Jacob, who was incapable of comprehending nobility of character, still doubting, still fearing, insisted upon finding grace with my lord, by the bribe of a present of cattle, what did the gorgeous son of the desert say? Nay, I have enough, my brother, keep that thou hast unto thyself. Esau found Jacob rich, beloved by wives and children, and travelling in state, with servants, herds of cattle, and trains of camels. But he himself was still the uncourted outcast this brother had made him. After thirteen years of romantic mystery the brethren who had wronged Joseph came strangers in a strange land, hungry and humble, to buy a little food. And being summoned to a palace charged with crime, they beheld in its owner their wronged brother. They were trembling beggars, he the lord of a mighty empire. What Joseph that ever lived would have thrown away such a chance to show off? 
Who stands first, outcast Esau forgiving Jacob in prosperity, or Joseph on a king's throne forgiving the ragged tremblers whose happy rascality placed him there? Just before we came to Joseph's pit, we had raised a hill, and there, a few miles before us, with not a tree or a shrub to interrupt the view, lay a vision which millions of worshippers in the far lands of the earth would give half their possessions to see, the sacred Sea of Galilee. Therefore we tarried only a short time at the pit. We rested the horses and ourselves, and felt for a few minutes the blessed shade of the ancient buildings. We were out of water, but the two or three scowling Arabs, with their long guns, who were idling about the place, said they had none, and that there was none in the vicinity. They knew there was a little brackish water in the pit, but they venerated a place made sacred by their ancestors' imprisonment too much to be willing to see Christian dogs drink from it. But Ferguson tied rags and handkerchiefs together till he made a rope long enough to lower a vessel to the bottom, and we drank, and then rode on. And in a short time we dismounted on those shores which the feet of the Saviour have made holy ground. At noon we took a swim in the Sea of Galilee, a blessed privilege in this roasting climate, and then lunched under a neglected old fig-tree at the fountain they call Ain et Tin, a hundred yards from ruined Capernaum. Every rivulet that gurgles out of the rocks and sands of this part of the world is dubbed with the title of Fountain, and people familiar with the Hudson, the Great Lakes, and the Mississippi fall into transports of admiration over them, and exhaust their powers of composition in writing their praises. If all the poetry and nonsense that have been discharged upon the fountains and the bland scenery of this region were collected in a book, it would make a most valuable volume to burn. During luncheon the pilgrim enthusiasts of our party, who had been so light-hearted and so happy ever since they touched holy ground, that they did little but mutter incoherent rhapsodies, could scarcely eat, so anxious were they to take shipping and sail in very person upon the waters that had borne the vessels of the apostles. Their anxiety grew, and their excitement augmented with every fleeting moment, until my fears were aroused, and I began to have misgivings that, in their present condition, they might break recklessly loose from all considerations of prudence, and buy a whole fleet of ships to sail in, instead of hiring a single one for an hour, as quiet folk are wont to do. I trembled to think of the ruined purses this day's performances might result in. I could not help reflecting bodingly upon the intemperate zeal with which middle-aged men are apt to surfeit themselves upon a seductive folly which they have tasted for the first time. And yet I did not feel that I had a right to be surprised at the state of things which was giving me so much concern. These men had been taught from infancy to revere, almost to worship, the holy places whereon their happy eyes were resting now. For many and many a year this very picture had visited their thoughts by day, and floated through their dreams by night. To stand before it in the flesh, to see it as they saw it now, to sail upon the hallowed sea, and kiss the holy soil that compassed it about, these were aspirations they had cherished while a generation dragged its lagging seasons by, and left its furrows in their faces, and its frosts upon their hair. To look upon this picture, and sail upon this sea, they had forsaken home and its idols, and journeyed thousands and thousands of miles in weariness and tribulation. What wonder that the sordid lights of workday prudence should pale before the glory of a hope like theirs, in the full splendor of its fruition! Let them squander millions! 
I said, who speaks of money at a time like this? In this frame of mind I followed, as fast as I could, the eager footsteps of the pilgrims, and stood upon the shore of the lake, and swelled, with hat and voice, the frantic hail they sent after the ship that was speeding by. It was a success. The toilers of the sea ran in and beached their bark. Joy sat upon every countenance. How much? Ask him how much, Ferguson. How much to take us all, eight of us, and you, to Bethsaida yonder, and to the mouth of Jordan, and to the place where the swine ran into the sea, quick, and we want to coast around everywhere, everywhere, all day long. I could sail a year in these waters, and tell him we'll stop at Magdala and finish at Tiberias. Ask him how much, anything, anything whatever. Tell him we don't care what the expense is. I said to myself, I knew how it would be. Ferguson, interpreting, he says, two Napoleons, eight dollars. One or two countenances fell, then a pause. Too much. We'll give him one. I never shall know how it was. I shudder yet when I think how the place is given to miracles. But in a single instant of time, as it seemed to me, that ship was twenty paces from the shore, and speeding away like a frightened thing. Eight crestfallen creatures stood upon the shore, and, oh, to think of it, this, this, after all that overmastering ecstasy! Oh, shameful, shameful ending, after such unseemly boasting! It was too much like, Ho, let me at him! followed by a prudent, Two of you hold him, one can hold me. Instantly there was a wailing and gnashing of teeth in the camp. The two Napoleons were offered, more if necessary, and pilgrims and dragomen shouted themselves hoarse with pleadings to the retreating boatmen to come back, but they sailed serenely away, and paid no further heed to pilgrims who had dreamed all their lives of some day skimming over the sacred waters of Galilee, and listening to its hallowed story in the whisperings of its waves, and had journeyed countless leagues to do it, and—and then concluded that the fare was too high impertinent Mohammedan Arabs, to think such things of gentlemen of another faith. Well, there was nothing to do but just submit and forego the privilege of voyaging on Gennesaret, after coming half round the globe to taste that pleasure. There was a time, when the Saviour taught here, that boats were plenty among the fishermen of the coasts, but boats and fishermen both are gone now, and old Josephus had a fleet of men-of-war in these waters eighteen centuries ago, a hundred and thirty bold canoes, but they also have passed away and left no sign. They battle here no more by sea, and the commercial marine of Galilee numbers only two small ships, just of a pattern with the little skiffs the disciples knew. One was lost to us for good, the other was miles away and far out of hail. So we mounted the horses and rode grimly on towards Magdala, cantering along in the edge of the water for want of the means of passing over it. How the pilgrims abused each other! Each said it was the other's fault, and each in turn denied it. No word was spoken by the sinners, even the mildest sarcasm might have been dangerous at such a time. Sinners that have been kept down, and had examples held up to them, and suffered frequent lectures, and been so put upon in a moral way, and in the matter of going slow, and being serious, and bottling up slang, and so crowded in regard to the matter of being proper, and always and forever behaving, that their lives have become a burden to them, would not lag behind pilgrims at such a time as this, and wink furtively, and be joyful, and commit other such crimes, because it would not occur to them to do it. Otherwise they would. But they did do it, though, 
and it did them a world of good to hear the pilgrims abuse each other, too. We took an unworthy satisfaction in seeing them fall out now and then, because it showed that they were only poor human people like us, after all. So we all rode down to Magdala, while the gnashing of teeth waxed and waned by turns, and harsh words troubled the holy calm of Galilee. Lest any man think I mean to be ill-natured when I talk about our pilgrims as I have been talking, I wish to say, in all sincerity, that I do not. I would not listen to lectures from men I did not like and could not respect, and none of these can say I ever took their lectures unkindly, or was restive under the infliction, or failed to try to profit by what they said to me. They are better men than I am. I can say that honestly. They are good friends of mine, too. And besides, if they did not wish to be stirred up occasionally in print, why in the mischief did they travel with me? They knew me. They knew my liberal way, that I like to give and take, when it is for me to give and other people to take. When one of them threatened to leave me in Damascus when I had the cholera, he had no real idea of doing it. I know his passionate nature and the good impulses that underlie it. And did I not overhear Church, another pilgrim, say he did not care who went or who stayed, he would stand by me till I walked out of Damascus on my own feet, or was carried out in a coffin, if it was a year? And do I not include Church every time I abuse the pilgrims? And would I be likely to speak ill-naturedly of him? I wish to stir them up and make them healthy. That is all. We had left Capernaum behind us. It was only a shapeless ruin. It bore no semblance to a town, and had nothing about it to suggest that it had ever been a town. But all desolate and unpeopled as it was, it was a lustrous ground. From it sprang that tree of Christianity whose broad arms overshadow so many distant lands to-day. After Christ was tempted of the devil in the desert, he came here and began his teachings, and during the three or four years he lived afterward, this place was his home almost altogether. He began to heal the sick, and his fame soon spread so widely that sufferers came from Syria and beyond Jordan, and even from Jerusalem several days' journey away, to be cured of their diseases. Here he healed the centurion's servant, and Peter's mother-in-law, and multitudes of the lame and the blind and persons possessed of devils. And here also he raised Jairus's daughter from the dead. He went into a ship with his disciples, and when they roused him from sleep in the midst of a storm, he quieted the winds and lulled the troubled sea to rest with his voice. He passed over to the other side, a few miles away, and relieved two men of devils, which passed into some swine. After his return he called Matthew from the receipt of customs, performed some cures, and created scandals by eating with publicans and sinners. Then he went healing and teaching through Galilee, and even journeyed to Tyre and Sidon. He chose the twelve disciples, and sent them abroad to preach the new gospel. He worked miracles in Bethsaida and Chorazin, villages two or three miles from Capernaum. It was near one of them that the miraculous draft of fishes is supposed to have been taken, and it was in the desert places near the other that he fed the thousands by the miracles of the loaves and fishes. He cursed them both, and Capernaum also, for not repenting, after all the great works he had done in their midst, and prophesied against them. They are all in ruins now, which is gratifying to the pilgrims, for, as usual, they fit the eternal words of gods to the evanescent things of this earth. 
Christ, it is more probable, referred to the people, not their shabby villages of wigwams. He said it would be sad for them at the day of judgment, and what business have mud hovels at the day of judgment? It would not affect the prophecy in the least. It would neither prove it nor disprove it. If these towns were splendid cities now instead of the almost vanished ruins they are. Christ visited Magdala, which is near by Capernaum, and he also visited Caesarea Philippi. He went up to his old home at Nazareth, and saw his brothers Joseph, and Judas, and James, and Simon, those persons who, being own brothers to Jesus Christ, one would expect to hear mentioned sometimes. Yet who ever saw their names in a newspaper, or heard them from a pulpit? Whoever inquires what manner of youths they were, and whether they slept with Jesus, played with Him, and romped about Him, quarrelled with Him concerning toys and trifles, struck Him in anger, not suspecting what He was. Whoever wonders what they thought when they saw Him come back to Nazareth a celebrity, and looked long at His unfamiliar face to make sure, and then said, It is Jesus? Who wonders what passed in their minds when they saw this brother? who was only a brother to them, however much he might be to others, a mysterious stranger who was a god, and had stood face to face with God above the clouds, doing strange miracles with crowds of astonished people for witnesses. Who wonders if the brothers of Jesus asked him to come home with them, and said his mother and his sisters were grieved at his long absence, and would be wild with delight to see his face again? Who ever gives a thought to the sisters of Jesus at all? Yet he had sisters, and memories of them must have stolen into his mind often when he was ill-treated among strangers, when he was homeless, and said he had not where to lay his head, when all deserted him, even Peter, and he stood alone among his enemies. Christ did few miracles in Nazareth, and stayed but a little while. The people said, This the Son of God! <laughs> Why, his father is nothing but a carpenter. We know the family. We see them every day. Are not his brothers named so-and-so, and his sisters so-and-so? And is not his mother the person they call Mary? Well, this is absurd. He did not curse his home, but he shook its dust from his feet, and went away. Capernaum lies close to the edge of the little sea, in a small plain some five miles long, and a mile or two wide, which is mildly adorned with oleanders, which look all the better contrasted with the bald hills, and the howling deserts which surround them. But they are not as deliriously beautiful as the books paint them. If one be calm and resolute, he can look upon their comeliness and live. One of the most astonishing things that have yet fallen under our observation is the exceedingly small portion of the earth from which sprang the now flourishing plant of Christianity. The longest journey our Saviour ever performed was from here to Jerusalem, about one hundred to one hundred and twenty miles. The next longest was from here to Sidon, say about sixty or seventy miles. Instead of being wide apart, as American appreciation of distances would naturally suggest, the places made most particularly celebrated by the presence of Christ are nearly all right here in full view, and within cannon-shot of Capernaum, Leaving out two or three short journeys of the Saviour, he spent his life, preached his gospel, and performed his miracles within a compass no larger than an ordinary county in the United States. It is as much as I can do to comprehend this stupefying fact. 
how it wears a man out to have to read up a hundred pages of history every two or three miles for verily the celebrated localities of palestine occur that close together how wearily how bewilderingly they swarm about your path in due time we reach the ancient village of magdala End of chapter forty seven